Dope Remix. So today we're going to talk about knowledge because it's important. We talked about the role Nara plays and they've been in the news for a, a couple of years now, just a few, as they are the cloak that they are using to hide their crimes. Or maybe huh, it's actually the emperor's robe. Let's talk about knowledge. Throughout history, knowledge has been glorified as uh, an elite skill. The phrase, knowledge is the greatest weapon of a human, is a figure of speech or a metaphor that highlights the power and the potential impact of knowledge in human life. It suggests that knowledge can be a valuable asset, empowering individuals in various ways. It's considered a powerful tool because, for one thing, it can assist in, in personal development, right? Knowledge broadens horizons and expands personal growth. It encourages curiosity, a desire to learn, and a continuous pursuit of understanding. Through knowledge, individuals can enhance their skills, and broaden their perspectives, and engage with new ideas, people, and experiences. It also fine-tunes critical thinking because knowledge fosters critical thinking skills, enabling individuals to question, evaluate, interpret information. It helps people create almost a mindset of discernment and make reasoned judgments. This capacity to think critically allows individuals to challenge assumptions, seek evidence, and make well-informed choices. Though that is a tightrope because as I've said, your gut is usually right. And logic and critical thinking to an extended being in your head uh, pretty much is the devil's advocate. Because through thought and through knowledge, we're empowered because it equips us with the ability to understand and analyze and navigate the world around us. It empowers us to make informed decisions, solve problems, and overcome challenges. With knowledge... We gain tools to improve our lives and the lives of others. And in addition, the more knowledge you have, the more fearless you are to go through uncharted waters and eat anything they throw at you for lunch. Now, even in all religious scriptures, knowledge is talked about in a sideways stance or how one might interpret it. Now, I can sit here and quote you thousands of knowledge phrases from the Quran, the Bible, the Mahabra. I can, I can list them all. But I think one of my most favorite, 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 favorite phrases is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and you, and with all your strength. Your mind is key here. It suggests that using one's mind and intellect in the pursuit of knowledge and understanding is an expression of love. I mean, of course, Johnny 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, right? Now, I think it's important for us to kind of assess how knowledge 
works. There's a lot of smart people in this world, many of them. I've had patients with people that are supposedly extremely smart. I actually had a very recent one a couple weeks ago where emotion was discussed. I think I kind of gave it an honorable, honorable mention at some point. But I want you guys to understand what your shadow means. We all have seen the hacking of our shadows, which we understand are our deepest fears and desires, and that it causes us great distress when they're hacked. But in essence, and this is the argument that I most recently had, knowledge, huh, well, derives from that. See, let's imagine a radiant garden blooming with like amazing flowers everywhere, bathing in golden sunlight. And that would, <clears throat> I would say, represents our conscious self, a place where we celebrate our virtues, our talents, and the beauty we wish to share with the world, right? Let's just envision that for a second. But hidden within this garden lies a secret a shadowy realm, untouched by the warmth of the sun. And this realm is the domain of where people would say lies the Jungian theory of, right? It's a realm where our hidden potential resides, waiting patiently to be embraced. The shadow is not a place of darkness, but rather it should be viewed as a reservoir of untapped power and undiscovered aspects of our being. It's a treasure trove of qualities we've repressed or neglected, parts of ourselves that we consider unworthy or unacceptable. Just as the moon needs the night to reveal its so enchanting glow, our shadow yearns for the acknowledgement and integration. It contains our unexpressed creativity, our wild instincts, and our untamed passions. It should be. And it is a source of inspiration that once explored can unleash our true potential. Embracing our shadow requires us courage and to have courage and compassion, right? Because it means venturing into the depths of our souls and our minds and retrieving hidden gems that have never seen the light of day. And by confronting our fears and securities and flaws, we embark on a transformative journey illuminating the shadow with our own torch of self-awareness. So as we delve into this area and this realm of shadow, we begin to understand that the shadow is not our enemy, but our ally. It teaches us empathy, humility, and the power of embracing our imperfections. Through integration of it, we actually become whole like a magnificent tapestry woven from threads of our light and our shadow. And so by embracing your shadow, you tap into the wellspring of your creative genius. Your unique gifts and talents emerge from those depths of darkness of your fears, breathing life into aspirations and dreams. And the shadow empowers us to forge our own path, unrestrained by social expectations or self-imposed limitations. 
So like I said, dancing with wolves is great. And it's almost like dancing with our shadow. And when we do do that, we become catalysts for personal and collective transformation. We inspire others to embrace their shadows, fostering a world where authenticity and acceptance flourish. And as your inner light from a flicker turns into a flame, it illuminates not only your own path, but it also guides others towards their own self-discovery. So I urge all of you to embrace the shadow within you because it holds the keys to your authenticity and your greatness. See, emotions are considered to be a weakness. And in this vast tapestry of our existence, emotions are vibrant hues that paint our lives with depth and meaning. I mean, some of us use a lot of black. <laughs> I do. But they're a symphony that stirs within us this gentle breeze that kind of just whispers to us. And yeah, there are storms that challenge everything we know, our very foundations. But you know, it's when you embrace these emotions, even in our vulnerability, that we discover true strength. When we, are when, when we actually sit and are, allow ourselves to feel, we open up floodgates of our humanity. We surrender to the current of joy, love, passion that surges through our veins innately, making us radiantly on fire. We soar to the highest peaks of elation where every dream seems within reach and it beats with a rhythm of pure possibility. But it's not only in the moments of triumph that our emotions reveal their transformative power, right? We've realized that over the past few years. And when I speak of emotions, I'm talking about the emotions of the whole nation as one. It's in the moments of vulnerability when we stand on the precipice of pain, failure, heartache, and fear that the true depth of our resilience is completely unearthed. Because it's through pain that we find healing. It's through heartache we discover the capacity to love even more fiercely. And it's through fear that we uncover the courage to step into the unknown, defying the limitations that we have set to ourselves to hold us back. Emotions in all their complexity sculpt us into warriors of the soul. Hold on. Let me pause here. Someone is saying that there's a problem with my rumble. Let me reach out. Give me a second. Give me a second. I'm sending a message. Well, I sent the message. All right, so where was I? Emotions, and this is important because this is gonna be a very emotional next uh, 10, 12 weeks. Emotions, in all their complexity, sculpt us into warriors. They are the catalysts that forge our character, shaping us into beings of empathy, compassion, and unwavering strength. They actually teach us how to weather the storms and emerge from the shadows and just shining with newfound wisdom and unbreakable spirit. In that vulnerability, 
which many, many that, you know, are considered people of national interest like myself, you know, super nerds. They believe emotions are garbage. They believe that tapping into emotions is not viable. I am here to tell you that emotions make us stronger, not in spite of our vulnerability, but because of it, right? It's through the cracks that the light seeps in, illuminating the depths of any fear that we might have. And it's done gently with kind of grace. It's very graceful. Our vulnerabilities become the fertile soil from which resilience grows, nourishing the roots of our inner strength. So it is important that all of us embrace our emotion, no matter how crazy the sound, right? Embrace it. Because that's the color that's painting your life. That's the color on your canvas. So just honor your vulnerabilities and your fears, but don't let them take you over because it's the gateway to our true self and, and acknowledging our presence, like being where we are. And it's through the highs and the lows, the laughter, the tears, that we become warriors, wielding the power of emotions, grace, and purpose. You know, I stumbled upon a question the other day, totally weird. And they were asking people, are you a lover or a fighter? And people would pick one. And it's like, you can't love if you don't fight. And you don't fight if you don't love. That was a dumb question. So for those of you out there struggling with the... I would say the, the atmosphere that's so dense hovering over our homes, our hearts, our communities, and, and our nation and other nations. Remember that in the face of adversity, you possess inner fortitude that can weather any storm. And your vulnerabilities and fears are not a weakness, but a testament to your courage. So embrace that. Because those are the threads that weave the tapestry of your extraordinary existence. And the depths of your vulnerability. And through there, you'll discover that your strength knows no bounds. And as a nation, we know no bounds. Like... Wars are created by lies, therefore truth can stop the wars. I mean, Julian Assange is still in jail. No one's talking about Catherine Arnett. <laughs> this is, you know, I, I feel like I'm a voice amidst chaos that permeates this world sometimes. I mean, I do eat chaos for lunch. I like to coordinate it. I thrive in chaos. Sometimes I grow stagnant, but... We're, we're, we are in an era unlike any other right now, an era of awakening, of emotion surging forth like a tidal wave, sweeping away the veil of complacency that once clouded our vision. And for too long, we've been in this like slumbered trance, blind to the shadows that lurked in the corners of our existence. Like we lived under the illusion that all was well, that the world we knew was a tapestry of goodness and light and just whatever. But that illusion has been completely shattered, revealing a stark reality, a reality where evil has woven its web seeping into the fabric of our lives. Yet... It is in this moment of reckoning. And as frustration courses through our veins like liquid fire, 
that we discover the true power that lies within each and every one of us collectively. And we realize that the dormant embers of our souls can be stoked into an inferno of righteous fury. I mean, that's where I'm at. I've been burning for a while. And it's through harnessing this frustration that we can channel and dismantle the structures of oppression and injustice that have long held sway. I think it's about time we realize we don't have to be pawns in a game that's rigged against us. That we don't have to cower in the face of adversity. And for now, we understand that our emotions, our collective voice, have a strength to shake the very foundations of this whole world. Many people ask me what my drive is. I've been asked this many times, who funds you? The people fund me. You know, how, what drives you? My drive is vengeance. And it is one of the most worst drivers ever. Vengeance. And I have almost completed the boxes that I let them build with their own hands. But it is wrong that I derive it from vengeance because that consumes me. Should not be consumed by hatred or vengeance because that's a path of darkness and I struggle so hard with it. I struggle to vamp, revamp it, that, that, that vengeance that I have. I'm trying to revamp it to be just frustration that catalyzes change. To be the impetus that propels forward with unwavering resolve. And I struggle with that because this is an era of emotions. And we have the opportunity to redefine our existence, to rewrite the narratives that have held us captive. And our voices, together in unison, have the power to break the chains that bind us, freeing not only ourselves, but many out there that have been ensnared in the clutches of this malevolence, right? It's an amazing time to be alive where we can wield our power with compassion, empathy, unwavering determination, because we navigate this huge labyrinth of adversity. Our emotions should be our guiding light. We should allow ourselves to tap into that, reminding that within us lies this huge shadow strength to transcend and to triumph. So we should embrace this era of emotions, for it's through them those emotions that we discover our true selves. So let the frustration do not, you know, do, do not do as I do. <laughs> I am, I'm like a walking ball of fire, of vengeance and anger. I try to tame it. And I guess this is why I feel that I shouldn't be around people because I'll probably burn them too. I'm sure all of you feel that way in some shape or form. But today we're going to talk about the Arcadia Fund, some lawsuit that no one's talking about, and knowledge because that's what's important. So for those ears that my voice reaches today, I come to you um, with 
words that words that bear the weight of history and the promise of a future. It is a pivotal moment. And we should acknowledge the cycle of self-sabotage that has plagued humanity for far too long. I'm clearly starting to enjoy the experience of the human experience. Because by enjoying it and, and, and completely releasing to it, you get to grasp, to get a better grasp, I guess, because in that grasp lies the keys to liberation. And it lies in the preservation of our past and learning from our errors and embracing this transformative power that our errors have for us. Guilt and shame need not be burdened to us for the mistakes of yesterday. It doesn't matter. That was yesterday. It's not today. So together, we can weave a new narrative, a tapestry of resilience and progress through collaboration and understanding, transcending the limitations of our own individual perspectives. Because people feel trapped all the time. They feel like they can't do enough, that they're failing. And I can sit here and tell you that everything's done. But you know what? If I was to title President Trump right now, if there was a book, a little small book about President Trump right now, I would call it Shattered Mirrors, where a man embarks on an extraordinary journey from political outsider to president of the United States. His victory, however, is met with resistance and opposition from the powerful institutions, the fourth unelected branch of government with the intent on preserving a corrupt status quo. And as his term ends and his reelection is stolen, he launches, huh? not by his own hands, a relentless campaign to expose the deep-seated corruption that has plagued previous administrations determined to prove that everything people thought of was right all along. And so this story could begin right, with someone like John Hamilton, a charismatic and unconventional candidate captivating the nation with promises of transparency, justice, and government that truly serves the people. It's exactly what President Trump did. And against all odds, he won the presidency with help from those that wish to liberate their nation, fueling the hope and excitement for change. But he himself, as he delved deeper into the inner workings of the government, he realized a web of deceit, manipulation, and unchecked power. He discovered that many influential agencies and figures are entangled in a web of corruption, using their positions for personal in the interests and for the best interests of the American people. As President Trump took steps to expose the truth, he faced the fiercest opposition. Powerful agencies and individuals launched relentless attacks, attempting to discredit him and undermine his credibility, throwing mud in his face and anyone that stood by his side or was 
discovered to be assisting with ensuring that his successes were visible. That struggle was intensified as he confronted powerful forces determined to silence him and maintain their grasp on power. So when the time came for re-election, I knew, we all knew, that President Trump was facing unprecedented obstacles. The election was marred by fraud and manipulation with this rightful victory stolen from the people of the United States. And undeterred, President Trump refuses to back down, realizing that this fight goes beyond any personal ambition, of course. But it's about unmasking the systemic corruption that is plagued in the highest echelons of power. I mean, many, 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 many times I have referred to myself as I feel like I'm Cassandra. You know, where in mythology, she would tell people what the future is and everyone would ignore her and she would always be right. And it's like she was plagued with a curse that no one listened to her. But in fact, that's not true. I believe that the Odyssey is what I've been mapping out. I feel... I had the most badass Trojan horse. That's what's up. And I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Badass Trojan horse. I mean, I am Greek. No one can one-up the Greeks. And there's a video for that. Now, as we know, with determination and support from his dedicated team, President Trump had, uh, had to launch like an audacious campaign to expose dark secrets and malevolent dealings of previous presidents. But he didn't have to. See, the one thing that I've been repeating is that everyone pulls their own pants down. Every single one. I saw on Twitter a post that Jennifer Lawrence put out. She said, hold on, let me, let me pull it up so I can read it accurately. I absolutely love it. I had never seen something so concise. And it says, I tried to follow the science, but it was simply not there. I then followed the money. That's where I found the science. Allow that to percolate, because that is a fascinating statement. You must understand that President Trump was hated. Mm. But as time has gone on and people have been pulling their own pants down, and while people are telling you they're covering for Joe Biden, we all know it's Barack Hussein Obama. And here I am, the person for years who worked very closely to them, telling you everything. And it was the very people that allegedly fight for freedom that brought more opposition to me than others. Fascinating, isn't it? Maybe they tapped the wrong shadows. You know, self-preservation is a very ugly quality. Through President Trump's relentless pursuit of truth, while operating within the goalpost and on the field that they have, he inspired a groundswell of support from everyday citizens, disillusioned by pervasive corruption. You see that the people are rising up. 
They're actually demanding justice and accountability from those that have exploited their trust from far too long. Now, if I was to write this book, which I'm not, (laughs) Shattered Mirrors portrays President Trump's journey as a hero, evolving from this political outsider to a symbol of hope and resilience. In his quest to expose corruption and restore integrity to the highest office in the land, and it resonates with people worldwide because the world is watching, challenging the very foundations of power and sparking movement for change. As the fate of our nation hangs in the balance, as many might say, you might ask yourself, will truth prevail? Will President Trump's unwavering pursuit of justice shatter the mirrors of corruption and restore the faith of a disillusioned nation? Well, that answer lies in the courageous actions of people like you who dare to challenge the status quo and strive for a better future. And that's how you make change. So to those ears that my voice reaches, knowledge is your best weapon. Knowledge is how you overcome everything. Knowledge is how things are fixed. Now, we're going to take a very, very short break. And I want you guys to re-listen to this if you need to. But as we grow as a people, I hope that all of you can see the distractions that you're being thrown at. You're being thrown everything into your myth. They're throwing you bones of this and that. Oh, the Durham report came out now that Hunter Biden's under trial. Mind you, yesterday I got a letter. You remember how Matt Taibbi was Congress and then IRS agents knocked on his door while he was away for shit from 2009? Well, I got a letter like that. That isn't even mine. I think it's my ex's from 2010. They're coming for all of us. And they're trying to find a way to box in without having to tap into the truth. I mean, it'll be a lot easier if they come in sideways rather than head on because then they would have to admit things. And that's the last thing they want to do. The absolute last thing they want to do. So let's take a quick break and start talking knowledge, like actual knowledge. Knowledge that can Shed light on people who are ghosts. And that is exactly the title of the song. People who are ghosts. It's a pretty, it's a pretty dope song. See you in just a few minutes.
Yeah, people are ghosts too. So let's talk about ghosts because that's what I've been trying to introduce you to, the people you don't know, the people you don't see. And today I'm going to show you people that um, have been fighting in your corner and you don't even know their name. Most of you don't. Some of you utilize their products and not see just how far they have gone to fight for humanity. Now, one of these fights happened ooh, ages ago. The Library of Alexandria was an ancient and renowned library, as we know, that stood in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. It was actually established during the reign of Ptolemy I in the 3rd century BC and remained the center of scholarship and knowledge for several centuries. The Library of Alexandria was more than just a library. It was a vast complex that included multiple buildings, lecture halls, and research facilities. It was its goal when it was created by the Greeks, right? And they placed it in Alexandria, Egypt, because it was the belly button of the world where everyone would go by with their ships. You know, and the problem was that you actually had to go there. And, you know, I'm going to introduce you to a guy that you don't know today. I said the same thing. The Library of Alexandria was aimed to collect and preserve knowledge from around the world. Every single piece of literature ever written, every stone etching, every thought that came out of the mind of anyone, anywhere that their boats could reach, they would collect. Knowledge from around the world that they collected attracted scholars, philosophers, and scientists from various disciplines. <laughs> it was one of the most fascinating creations that mankind had created. It amassed the most impressive collection of scrolls, manuscripts, texts, pictures covering a wide range of subjects, including math, geography, literature, medicine, astronomy, philosophy, anything you can think of, cooking, recipes, they were all there. It became kind of almost like the beacon of intellectual activity, drawing renowned thinkers such as Archimedes and Erastasenius and Euclid. And the primary purpose of this library was not only to gather, but to translate, copy, and preserve the text from different cultures and civilizations throughout time. It sought to create a comprehensive repository of knowledge fostering the exchange of ideas and promoting intellectual pursuits. And when our nation was created and we created the Library of Congress, <laughs> that was the intention too. But unfortunately, the Library of Alexandria met a tragic fate as our Library of Congress is meeting a tragic fate. Well, they're trying. Over time, the Library of Alexandria suffered multiple periods of decline and destruction. The most notable destruction happened 48 years before Christ, during Julius Caesar's conquest of Alexandria, where a portion of the library was accidentally sent ablaze during the siege of Alexandria. The extent of the library's destruction and subsequent, I guess, reconstructions is always debated. 
what was there, what was taken, what was burned, what was hidden away from the people. Nevertheless, everyone knows that the Library of Alexandria represented the most remarkable effort of humankind to gather and disseminate knowledge, leaving a lasting legacy as a symbol of pursuit of wisdom and the importance of libraries throughout history. So while others are distracted analyzing things that most of them are not capable of analyzing, <laughs> I want to introduce you to one person today. Well, I guess everything they're doing. Because this person has been at the forefront trying to ensure that knowledge is free to all. So there's a talk where he spoke 14 years ago at a TED Talk. One of the most amazing TED Talks I have attended in person. And I'd love to share the first five minutes of that with you. Well, actually, this version, damn it. I didn't pull my archive from 2009, so, oh, damn it. But this one's good, too. Damn it. hate it when I do that. Okay, here we go. This is older, but he says the same things. We really need to put the best we have to offer within reach of our children. If we don't do that, we're going to get the generation we deserve. They're going to learn from whatever it is they have around them. And we as now the elite, parents, librarians, professionals, whatever it is, a bunch of our activities are in fact in trying to get the best we have to offer within reach of those around us or as broadly as we can. I'm going to start and end this talk with a couple things that are carved in stone. One is what's on the Boston Public Library carved above their door is free to all. It's kind of an, an inspiring statement, and I'll, I'll go back at uh, to the end of this. I'm a librarian, and what I'm trying to do is bring all of the work's knowledge uh, to as many people as want to read it. And the idea of using technology is perfect for us. I think we have the opportunity to one-up the Greeks. It's not easy to one-up the Greeks. Uh, but they, with the industriousness of the Egyptians, they were able to build a library of Alexandria, of a uh, copy of every book of all the peoples of the world. The problem was, you actually had to go to Alexandria to go to it. On the other hand, if you did, then great things happened. I think we can one-up the Greeks and achieve something. And I'm going to try to argue only one point today, that universal access to all knowledge is within our grasp. So if you'll actually come away thinking, yeah, we could actually achieve the great vision of everything ever published, everything that was ever meant for distribution, available to anybody in the world that's ever wanted to have access to it. Yes, there's uh, issues about how money should be distributed, uh, and that's still being refigured out. But I'd say there's plenty of money and there's plenty of demand um, so we can actually uh, achieve that. Um, but I'm going to go over the technological, social, and sort of where, we, where are we as a whole, trying to get to that particular vision. And the way I'm going to try to do this is do it like the Amazon.com website. The books 
music, video, and, and just go step media type by media type to go and say, all right, how are we doing on this? So if we start with books, um, you know, so where, where are we? Well, first you have to, as an engineer, scope the problem. How big is it? If you wanted to put all of the published works in, uh, online so anybody could have it, uh, it available, well, how big a problem is it? Well, we don't really know, um, but the largest print library in the world is the Library of Congress. It's 26 million volumes, 26 million volumes. It's by far and away the largest uh, print library in the world. And a book, if you had a book, is about a megabyte. So, uh, you know, if you had it in Microsoft Word. So uh, a megabyte, 26 million megabytes, 26 terabytes, because mega, giga, tera. 26 terabytes. 26 terabytes fits in a computer system that's about this big on spinning, spinning Linux drives, and it costs about $60,000. So for the cost of a house, or around here a garage, um, you, 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 can put, you can have spinning all of the words in the Library of Congress. That's pretty neat. Then the question is, is what do you get if, you know, is it worth trying to get there? Do you actually want it online? Some of the first things that people do is they, they make book readers that allow you to search inside the books, and that's kind of fun, and you can download these things and look around them in, in new and different ways, and you can get at them remotely if you happen to have uh, a laptop. There's starting to be some of these uh, sort of page-turny interfaces that look a whole lot like books in certain ways, and you can search and make little tabs, and it's kind of cute, still very um, book-like on your laptop, but I don't know, reading things on a laptop, whenever I pull out my laptop, it always feels like work. I think that's one of the reasons why the Kindle is so great. I, I don't have to feel like I'm at work to read a Kindle. It's starting to be a little bit more specific, uh, specified. But I have to say that there's, uh, uh, there's older technologies that I, I tend to like. Um, I like the physical book. And I think we can go and use our technology to go and digitize things, put them on the net, and then download, print them, and bind them, and end up with books again. And we sort of said, well, how hard is this? And it turns to make a bookmobile. And a bookmobile the size of a van with a satellite dish, a printer, binder, and cutter, and kids make their own books. It costs about $3 to download, print, and bind a normal old book. And they actually come out kind of nice looking. You can actually get really good looking books uh, for on the order of one penny per page, sort of the parts cost for doing this. So the idea of this technology actually may end up putting books back in people's hands again. There are some other bookmobiles running around. This is Eric Eldred making books at Walden Pond, Thoreau's works. This is just before he got kicked out by the park service <laughs> for competing with the bookstore there. Um, in India, they've got another couple bookmobiles running around, and this is the opening day at the Library of Alexandria, the new Library of Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, it was quite popularly uh, attended, and kids starting to make their own books and a happy kid with the first book that he's ever owned. So the idea of being able to use this technology to end up with paper back in hand sort of sounds a little retro, um, but I think it, it still has its place. And being sort of from the Silicon Valley sort of utopian sort of, you know, uh, sort of world, we thought if we can make this technology work in rural Uganda, we might, have ha we might have something. So we actually got some funding from the World Bank to try it out. And we found in about 30 days we could go and take a couple folks from, from Silicon Valley, fly them to... Uh, Uganda, buy a car, set up the first internet connection at the National Library of Uganda, uh, figure out what they wanted, and get a program going making books in rural Uganda. And it actually, so technologically it, it, it works. What we found out of this is we didn't have the right books. 
So the books were in the library, we could get it to people if they were digitized, but we doubted to quite get it digitized. Everybody thought the answer is send things to uh, India and China. Um, and so we've tried that, and I'll go over that in a moment. There are some newer technologies for delivering that have happened that are actually quite exciting as well. One is a print-on-demand machine that looks like a Rube Goldberg machine. We have one of these things now. It's completely cool. It, it's an it, 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 old conveyor belt, and it makes a book. Um, and it's uh, called the Espresso Book Machine. And about 10 minutes, you, you can press a button and make a book. Something else I'm quite excited about uh, in this particular domain um, beyond these sort of kiosky things where you can get books uh, on demand is uh, some of these new little screens that are coming out. Um, and one of uh, my favorites in this is the $100 laptop. Um, and I, I don't mean to, to, to uh, steal any thunder uh, here, but we've gone and used one of these things to be an ebook reader. Um, so here's one of the beta units. Um, and you can, it actually turns out to be a really good looking ebook reader. So that's Brewster Kale. Allow me to show you who Brewster Kale is. He's a fascinating human being. I would love to see him as the archivist, the 11th archivist of the United States, because he's passionate about knowledge and about bringing knowledge to the forefront. He is why you can get archive websites. But you'll be surprised who's behind all that and the attack that they're currently under. American Artifacts visits museums, historic places, and archives. Up next, we travel to the Internet Archive in San Francisco to learn about their project to create an internet library. The Archive strives to offer permanent access to historical collections that exist in digital form for scholars, historians, people with disabilities, and the general public. We begin by hearing from Brewster Kale, founder of the Internet Archive. And promises of having the Library of Congress on your desk forever. And it's like, well, why don't we just go and build that? And so it's uh, been a long journey. Um, I started working on this in general in 1980 and then building some of the computers and then the publishing systems that, that became the World Wide Web. And those are early days of these things to try to get publishers online and selling a couple companies, helping try to get this open structure to work. And then really building this internet archive thing starting in 1996 by archiving the World Wide Web, then television, movies, music. Um, and now we're digitizing about a thousand books a day and making those publicly available. My name is Jesse Bell. I am the coordinator here at the San Francisco Scanning Center for Internet Archive. We have uh, 33 scanning locations. Uh, this is one of them in which we are working on digitizing books, microfilm, and also regular film. We have three main steps. One is we want to create a specific web page for each item. And then we have our second step which is the image capture step. This is a machine that we designed. It's a way to digitize books that is non-destructive. Um, and also, just as important, it provides a high-quality image once the book is online. And what we do is we have two professional-grade cameras, uh, one in the upper right and one in the upper left, is 
go through each page and take an image. The, we have two panes of glass on top, and what that does is it presses the page so that it's flat, and that'll provide a nice, clear, crisp image once the item is online. After the image capture step, we have the third step and final step. We call this the republishing step, and what we're doing is a basic quality check. We want to ensure that every page is present, make sure all the images are clear, and that all the content has been captured. Once Karina verifies that the quality is correct, that the presentation is correct, she will upload the book. It'll take about 24 to 48 hours for the book to appear on our website. Once you look at a, an item on our website, there's a couple different ways to read the book. Uh, we have an in-browser reader, so that you're able to page through the book, uh, you're able to search the text. There's also a number of different file formats that you can download as well. Uh, there's a PDF file, there's also a Kindle file, um, an EPUB file if you have another uh, version of an ebook reader. We have over 3 million books online right now. We like to say that uh, we bought this building because it matches the logo. We have, you know, the Alexandrian columns on our logo. Uh, and we have columns out here. But really, this was a building that was available. San Francisco, as you know, is an overcrowded and expensive city, and it's very hard to find space. And this space seemed perfect. And we were all able to come in and be under one roof. This was the uh, place of worship for the Christian scientist. These are active servers. And every time you see a light blinking, that's data coming in or, or data coming out. These are our terracotta soldiers. When someone has worked with the archive for three years, Brewster commissions a statue. And so we're not only archiving the data, but we're archiving the archivists as well. The power of the Internet Archive is the Internet. It's just the number of people out there that are doing wonderful projects. And they're, they're often putting things on other commercial hosts, and then we're archiving those or it's figuring out what should be archived, how should the be presented, um, is really going on by thousands and thousands of enthusiasts. How can we go and take all the work of all of these people and make sure that it endures for centuries? And that's one of the big experiments that the Internet Archive and more broadly memory institutions in the digital domain are attempting to do. You can explore the digital materials of the Internet Archive at archive.org. Links on the main page take you to the video, music, audio, and text collections. By searching with various keywords, you can find many public domain films and publications created by the United States government. So that, my friends, is American Artifacts, and I've introduced you to Brewster Cowell. He has been fighting for innovation, social progress, whatever you want to call it. We all know the Ford Foundation is part of our uh, government structures. But again, things that are created for good can always be turned into evil and then revert back. It is all dependent on the people that control. So I'd like you to take a listen to what locking the web open means. And this is Brewster saying it himself. 
who I hope is our next archivist, if he'll have us. Uh, thank you, Brewster Kale, founder of the Internet Archive. Um, over the last 25 years, millions of people have now gone and put their lives into this wonderful thing called the web. What I'd like to do is talk about how we might be able to lock the web open. Um, and may seem a little bit counterintuitive, but I've got five minutes to communicate it. One of my heroes, Larry Lessig, uh, famously wrote, code equals law. The way that we code the web determines how we live our lives online. We need to bake our values into the code itself. Um, and, but, so we need it to be um, private. We need it to have freedom of expression baked in. Universal access to all knowledge needs to be baked into the web. But unfortunately, we found that it isn't that way. It's actually quite fragile. The, the Internet Archive has been archiving a billion pages from the web every week. And we know now that the average life of a web page is 100 days before it's either um, changed or it disappears. It blinks on and off the web. Whole websites, like the Internet Archive, is not available to anybody in China at all, as well as the New York Times. And other countries blink uh, on and off uh, parts of the web. So the web isn't reliable. It's also not private. Uh, we now know, through Snowden, um, that the GCHQ and the NSA have targeted people just because they have read WikiLeaks' website. We in the library world understand reader privacy is important and we need to do something about it. But it is fun. Right, so out of the big three things, um, reliability, privacy, and fun, um, and it's fun in the sense that lots of people have, have piled into the web, we've gotten one out of three. I'd suggest we could do something better to get all three. We could build a distributed web. Build on top of the web a distributed web. Uh, what is a distributed web? Think of the underlying internet, the plumbing of the internet. The plumbing of the internet works such that if any parts of it are blown up, literally, it'll still work. That's not true of the web. Um, think of the Amazon cloud. The Amazon cloud, the way that works is there's computers and data centers all over the world, and websites move from server to server to be able to go and get them closer to users, get around hardware faults, um, and scale up when needed. What if we made the World Wide Web the servers of the, of the World Wide Web distributed in that same sense all over the world. It would be like peer-to-peer -peer technology so that those that are participating in the distributed web would be building it, making it safer, more distributed. So not only readers, but other institutions like the Internet Archive. Uh, also, we'd need a distributed authentication system so we don't have centralized usernames and passwords. This is where public key encryption uh, comes in. And we also need to make it so that it's private in such a way that you could read anything on the net and know that you're not being spied on. This is actually the most difficult challenge out of this whole uh, project is reader privacy. It's actually harder than writer privacy, but it is extremely uh, important uh, to be able to do. We also should build in a time axis. This time, let's make it so that the web is not in a perpetual present, that there are the past versions of the web are also accessible. Libraries have past editions. Let's build it in by the start, as opposed to what the Internet Archive is trying to do, which is glue it back on uh, afterwards. So, and of course, we still need to make it fun. 
malleable enough such that millions of inventors will go and put their new ideas into this distributed web in the same sense that we built uh, up the, uh, the centralized web. So how can we pull this off? Well, there are a bunch of tools that weren't available to Sir Tim 25 years ago. Uh, our computers are a thousand times faster than they used to be. JavaScript is really pretty interesting. JavaScript is the code that runs in your browser, like that does the Google Docs magic. Um, but it can do much more than that to actually build the distributed web itself so that the readers of the web can help distribute it. It's kind of interesting. There's public key encryption now that is able to, uh, that is now legal, that wasn't legal 25 years ago. And there's blockchain, which is underlying Bitcoin, which is a global distributed database, which is at least strong enough to, to handle currency transactions. So I'd say our opportunity here with the funders, technologies, visionaries, is to go and lock the web open. We can make openness irrevocable. We can bake the First Amendment into the web itself. This is something this group can do, can fund, make happen, and I suggest that we really take this kind of idea seriously. Thank you very much. Now, before I continue this video, I just wanted to say, did you hear what he said? We can bake the First Amendment into a digital library. But as we've been seeing, the Internet Archive is under attack, and I'll bring this to your attention. I found a good analysis by someone rather than me just rating, you know, for like 30 minutes. Bake the First Amendment into our digital library. We see that Amazon is deleting books and won't sell them. Libraries are removing publications. Things are being altered, yet they are maintaining it. And remember Barack Hussein Obama huh, weaponized NARA by digitizing our artifacts of literature. Many even from the Library of Alexandria and destroying them. This is key. History should never be erased. History should always be embraced. Let's see what else happens here. Brewster, we probably in public too rarely say how much we admire one another and what people have done. I hugely admire what you've we done. We in the nonprofit the internet world. Archive. Thank you. Thank you. I, I tell you, this, we in the library world and in the nonprofit world live for comments like that, so thank but you. Brewster, you, <laughs> you absolutely took an idea that seemed totally nuts at the beginning, and you took a tiny bit of money and you made something unbelievably great with your. your Great skill, so thank you for that. You've given us another big, crazy idea that we could take on and probably should. Um, but I wonder about sort of an intermediate question, which yep. is that whole thing about archiving the web, yes. have we sorted that all out and are you on it? Or are there other challenges maybe <laughs> like computer software and video and maybe different formats and other things that we all might work on and help libraries and you get done? Never done enough. Um, so the worldwide, uh, archiving the World Wide Web, when we started it, lawyers said there, <laughs> bad things were going to happen Except to you. Except Larry Lessig. Um, he said good Larry things Larry Lessig said, go. Yeah. Um, and we went, and it's been fine. Um, and it turns out to be very popular. About 600,000 people a day use this collection. That's now 450 billion pages. But keeping up with the web is actually pretty challenging. Um, making it searchable is what we need to do. 
Uh, we also need to have it located in a few different places around the world, because uh, having it in only one place uh, doesn't make any sense at all. We have a partial copy in Alexandria, Egypt, and in Amsterdam. If there were five or six of these around the world, I would be able to sleep um, better. We also, the technology is not designed to be archived. It's actually, it's, it's difficult to do our job, um, technically. So I suggest we could look forward, like what I'm talking about, this uh, locking the web open, we could do it with archiving uh, in mind. So I'd suggest we need more help, not only in dealing with the born digital materials, and not just us, the, the world, but also, let's take all of the old materials and put them online. Turns out it's only about a $100 million project to digitize the a Yale, a Princeton, or a Boston Public Library and put it online. This is within our grasp. $100 million, one time, Carnegie moment, whoop, we're done. So I'd say we could bring the past into the web. We can try to um, make the web, the, the wonderful things that people are putting into the web, permanently available and then build technologies towards the future that make it so that the web is not a scary place that people retreat to little private gardens because they think the whole thing is bugged. Brewster, awesome. Thank you. Thank Let's you. Do it. So Brewster is an amazing person, having observed him over time. His demi-socialist but liberating ideas, which make it so amazing because he dances between the two confused. And that is what makes humans so incredible. Because when they hone in on something that they're passionate about, right, it's game over. And I, I will, I, I don't want to say it because I want it say it to someone that's very important to me at some point, and maybe I'll share. But purpose is not something that just calls you. Purpose is within you. And I'll elaborate on that at some point in June. Because I know a lot of you out there that are listening to my voice are thinking, well, I, I feel like I need to have a drive. I, I, I feel trapped. I'm in case. Guys, I'm there with you. I mean, they're, they're coming for me. I, I don't share a lot of the details and people still see me on, but within 24 hours, YouTube gave me strikes. <laughs> so I can't stream there. The IRS sent me letters. And, you know, I'm fine. Uh, we're all there and lots of us are barely above water trying to struggle with, you know, it's very hard when you see things for what they are. I'm kind of jealous of how laser focused Brewster is. I am. I'm very jealous. Because he's trying to preserve history of web pages and that's important and you know what else is important? The funds that fund it and what's happening. Arcadia, I love that title. One of my favorite pieces of things that I've created. You know, I always say I created two amazing humans. I, and I've created some, Arcadia is one of them. And you know, Arcadia 
the word in, in itself, you know, it refers to a place in Greece uh, through Greek mythology. It's um, relation to knowledge is a metaphoric uh, representation of an idyllic, harmonious state of intellectual enlightenment and wisdom. It, um, Arcadia itself represents a tranquil and serene environment as the Arcadia of knowledge that symbolizes a realm where knowledge is pure, untainted by ignorance or falsehood, and embraced for its inherent value. Seeing it in that light, which I always have, it is almost a metaphorical aspiration reflecting this ideal pursuit of knowledge and intellectual growth. And it signifies a realm where individuals are deeply connected to knowledge, wisdom, and understanding that, for, that, that literally fosters a sense of fulfillment and, and, and harmony and purpose. It's worth noting that um, this is more of a metaphorical ex- extension of um, what one person may define as Arcadia in relation to knowledge and that, you know, Arcadia itself is more commonly associated with its original meaning of a mythical pastoral paradise, right? One of the biggest funds that support archiving digital information is the Arcadia Fund. And that was actually created in 2001 by a couple. It's an actual philanthropic fund that supports various initiatives, right? Related to the preservation of cultural heritage, open access to knowledge, and of course, environmental conservation. It wants to protect endangered materials and promote uh, sustainable practices for the benefit of future generations. It was actually established by, I think she's Swedish, Lisbeth Rousing and Peter Baldwin. They're committed to providing resources to support all projects globally that address critical challenges in those specific areas. And again, they were inspired to call it the Arcadia Fund because of the idealized, unspoiled, natural landscapes depicted in ancient Greek mythology of Arcadia. And this fund has made like significant contributions to numerous cultural and conservation initiatives like around the world, okay? It's purported and supported the preservation and digitization of important manuscripts, rare books, and archival materials and maps to make them accessible to a wider audience. And the fund has also played a very key role in supporting open access publishing initiatives and promoting scholarly communication. In fact, the Arcadia Fund focused on environmental conservation efforts with a particular emphasis on protecting endangered ecosystems and biodiversity, again, archiving that and trying to protect it. It supports projects that mitigate impacts that humans have in their environments, either by urbanizing them or... um, excessively harvesting them, 
It's a grant-making uh, organization and provides extensive financial support to institutions and initiatives through open calls that it has where people apply for funding um, to be able to maintain that. It's also worth uh, noting that the Arcadia Fund has supported, obviously, the Internet Archive in numerous capacities. All of you use the Wayback Machine. Arcadia Fund is one of the backbones funding it. Brewster is the mind behind it. And it's important to preserve our cultural heritage and history, never to get rid of it. And you know, uh, major foundations that support it, you wouldn't believe it, is uh, the Institute of Museum and Library Services, MLS, right? Uh, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the Democracy Fund, the Ford Foundation, the Alfred uh, Sloan Foundation, uh, the Knight Foundation, the Mellon Foundation. You're like, but all of them are corrupt. It doesn't matter. They require knowledge too. And there are corporations that support and their support is more so too hijacked. And that would be Amazon Web Services, right? Microsoft, Google, of course. So we've got the agencies all over it. It's important that we understand why knowledge is so important. The Internet Archive is primarily just funded by philanthrop uh, you know, philanthropists around the world, right? From foundations to partnerships to fee-for-service to sponsorships to government grants, right? From governments that um, recognize the importance. And, you know, while many might say, well, Oh my gosh, Bill Gates and all of them, they, of course they are because they have a treasure trove. And once you put your foot in and you're like, yo, we're a partner, let us this, Brewster's quite smart. And this is why they launched an attack. Brewster Kale, just so you know, is a, is a computer engineer, right? He's all into the internet and he is a librarian, but a digital librarian. His vision for the Internet Archive was to build a library so massive that almost anybody and their mother can access from anywhere in the world, providing universal access to knowledge and cultural artifacts. I remember his date of birth, not because it's whatever, but it's the same day as my daughter, right? So he was born on October 22nd, 1960. And, you know... Uh, reading his history a couple of years ago kind of made me pause. He was uh, all in with the internet bubbles. He was a computer engineer, but he loved knowledge. And he realized that the failure of society in general was because of the lack of knowledge, the inability to access education and information uh, to be able to cultivate the new, the mind, the soul. The, you know, to make these decisions that we make. It's important for us to recognize this because this will be at the forefront of discussions quite soon. Now, preserving the history of web pages is important because. Universal access to all knowledge is how people can avoid traps of fake news, propaganda, 
influence operations. So it, was it in the Bible? I want to remember the statement. My people will perish from lack of knowledge. The more ignorance, the easier to control. That is how it is. And let me show you what's coming down the pipeline. This is quite fascinating, and I think it's time we talk about it, considering NARA's at the forefront. See, because these organizations approached and said, yeah, we're funding, the thing is they can't penetrate what his vision is. He is the beacon. He wants to make the Internet Archive the beacon of digital knowledge. And so what did he create? Let's get to that. So basically the way it would work, it would almost, it is like a library. So he would have what you call um, CDL. It was like a controlled digital lending thing. So that's like kind of going to the library. You know, the library has two books, you wait. And, and if you go there and you're lucky and you find one of the two copies, you get it and then you take it home and you read it and then, you know, you bring it back. Well, controlled digital lending is just that too. It operates on the principle that libraries can digitize their physical collections and lend out digital copies to patrons in a controlled manner, mirroring the limitations and conditions of physical lending. In other words, like, you know, as I said, the library owns a physical copy and the CDL allows them to lend out a digital version of that book to a limited number of users at a time, replicating the concept of loaning a physical book. Well, you know, the key aspects to to, to control digital lending would be limited simultaneous lending. So that would be that the number of digital copies available for lending is restricted to mirror the library's physical lending capacity. And there would be digital rights management. Measures are put in place to prevent unauthorized duplication or redistribution of digital copies, you know, the copyright stuff, right? And then time-limited ending. The lending period for digital copies is typically set to mirror the traditional loan duration of physical books. And then there's own-to-loan ratios. Libraries adhere to one-to-one ratio, meaning that for each physical copy owned, only one digital copy is lent out at a time. And that is the purpose of that is to enable libraries to provide access to their collections in a digital form, particularly in situations where the physical copies may be inaccessible or during a period of high demand. And proponents uh, out there, lots of people say that, you know, Controlled digital lending promotes equitable access to knowledge while respecting copyright laws as libraries digitize and lend on the materials they own. It's almost like, you know, you want to watch a movie. Uh, you know, you can probably go to the library and just rent a DVD or a Blu-ray or, I don't know, get it on a jump drive. Who knows? Um but uh, that will allow you to be able to see it without paying. And uh, obviously, you know, MGM may be like, um, you're only allowed to lend it one at a time. So people have to wait because uh, we're not making money on it. So it's all about money. But in essence, the argument about money and copyright has nothing to do with it. It's all about control. See, when you can't control the content, then you seek to destroy it. Allow me to show you what's happening right now. An existential threat to all libraries, media preservation, and an affront to fair use. Whilst
doctors believe the archive knowingly and blatantly violated copyright law en masse. So what's going on? Well, first we need to talk about the Internet Archive itself. Founded in 1996 by Brewster Kale, an American computer engineer and entrepreneur, the Internet Archive is an organization advocating for a free, open internet by providing unlimited access to digitized materials through its website, archive.org, and its various sister sites. As of the making of this video, the archive holds a staggering 806 billion archived web pages, 9.8 million movies, 15 million audio files, 2.5 million TV shows, nearly a million software programs, 9.6 million images, a quarter million concerts, 1.7 million collections, and 38 million print materials. These print materials are at the heart of the issue, containing over 4 million books that the Internet Archive have personally scanned into ebooks, of which includes 1.4 million books that are currently protected under United States copyright law. Fans of the channel know the Internet Archive is an invaluable resource for media preservation and its Wayback Machine that lets users view old websites has been used to research and recover countless pieces of lost media. But as you can probably guess, a site with so much free content available to anyone with an internet connection has proven very controversial, being blocked in India, China, temporarily blocked in Turkey, and accused of hosting terrorist materials. But they are currently facing what I believe is their biggest threat to date. Typically, the archive lends out ebooks through its open library at an own-to-loan ratio, meaning if the Internet Archive owns a physical copy of a book, they scan it to create an ebook and let one person at a time borrow it through their website. If they own two physical copies of the same book, they could lend out two at a time, and so on. If all copies were checked out, you could join a waitlist. They're applying the same basic principles that libraries use to lend physical books, with the added steps of making a digital copy, some extra protections like DRM, digital resource management, that prevent borrowers from making copies of in-copyright works, and ensuring that the books are returned to the Internet Archive automatically after 14 days. These policies of own-to-loan ratio and DRM make up what's called CDL, Controlled Digital Lending. The IA has been using this system since 2011 to great success, with 70,000 daily borrowers. The practice of CDL has raised legal concerns, but had never been seriously challenged in court. That would change when, in response to the pandemic, the IA announced the National Emergency Library. To address our unprecedented global and immediate need for access to reading and research materials. As of today, March 24th, 2020, the Internet Archive will suspend waitlists for the 1.4 million and growing books in our lending library by creating a national emergency library to serve the nation's displaced learners. This suspension will run until June 30th, 2020, or the end of the U.S. national emergency, whichever is later. <laughs> oh my sweet summer child. Basically what this meant is that the Archive I was offering unlimited copies of all of its books, even the ones that were still protected under copyright law due to the national emergency. The NEL was met with near universal acclaim from the general public. Hundreds of libraries and universities saw it as necessary to streamline education in newly created online spaces. But it was abhorred by authors and their publishers. The Authors Guild explained, IA has no rights whatsoever to these books, much less to give them away indiscriminately without consent from the publisher or author. We are shocked that the Internet Archive would use the COVID-19 epidemic as an excuse to push copyright law further to the edges. And in doing so, harm authors, many of whom are already struggling.
But even with the general public on the archive side, publishers had bipartisan support in Congress from Senator Tom Tills and Tom Udall, and even members of the U.S. Copyright Office, all expressing concerns with the NEL. Senator Tom Tills spoke on the subject. I'm concerned that the Internet Archive thinks that it, not Congress, gets to determine the scope of copyright law. And this all came to a head on June 16th, 2020, when the Internet Archive was slapped with a lawsuit from four of the world's largest book publishers, HarperCollins, Penguin Random House, Hatchet Book Group, and Wiley, claiming that the Internet Archive committed willful mass copyright infringement, citing 127 books that they lent out through their open library. The Archive responded by ending the NEL, but continued their traditional lending practices. In late 2020, the Archive launched the Empowering Libraries campaign, framing the case as an existential threat to all libraries. Now, maybe this is standard in legal documents and I just haven't read enough of them, but in the publisher's complaint, Hatchet Book Group Inc. versus Internet Archive, you can just feel the disdain pouring out of the pages. It's like the Internet Archive personally insulted their mother. And not only was this a vicious attack on the Archive and its founder, Brewster Kale, but it was incredibly well written. In the legal complaint, they took aim at the Internet Archive's nonprofit status, noting $150 million in revenue, that they required user donations, upwards of $90, for the IA to scan books not in their library, their use of cheap overseas labor and volunteers to scan books, and lambasting the fact that when the Archive did provide links to legally purchase copies of books, they led to Better World Books, a business owned by the IA's founder, Brewster Kale. They even implied that when the Archive does buy a legal copy of a book, they buy it through Better World Books as a means of profiting from unauthorized copies, stating, IA's book sponsorship scheme is breathtakingly brazen. In essence, IA tells users which copyrighted books it wants to infringe, then asks them to pay a donation far in excess of the list price of the book for IA to go out and buy a print copy from an undisclosed source, possibly Better World Books. Finally, IA uses the user's money to scan the book and put it online, where anyone can get a copy for free, completing the copyright infringement process without spending a single dollar of its own money. They call out the IA for trying to solve educational issues during COVID by depriving authors of sales they need to stay afloat, and at the same time referencing section 110 of the Copyright Act, the TEACH Act, that accounts for teachers to make copyright exceptions during a health crisis without harming the publishing ecosystem. The document is full of these pointed attacks, but even more impressive is just how ruthless the subtext is. Woven throughout without explicitly saying any of it, the publisher's legal team implies that the Internet Archive is un-American by violating the spirit of copyright intended by the Founding Fathers, that the IA is harming the education system by not paying for authors' works, that they cause monetary loss to authors from marginalized groups, Nobel Prize winners, and beloved children's authors, again without actually saying any of it. If you can't tell, I had a great time reading the complaint. I've always been biased in favor of the Internet Archive, but this document was just so well written and at times almost sassy. It would be hilarious if it didn't point to such unsettling consequences. There are two elements of the complaint in particular that could have devastating long-term effects for libraries and media preservation. The attack of controlled digital lending and an attack on the first sale doctrine. I just want to say something. I want to pause just for a second. With the whole health emergency, you never let a good crisis go to waste when you want to amplify what the real underlying goal is. And that will be the conclusion of today's show. Because then you'll understand. Because people talk 
talk, talk. Guys, you, I, I just want you to visualize this because it's like, I, I, you know, I was too young to follow Ally McBeal, but sometimes I watch a few snippets on YouTube every now and then. And it's like, yo, that's totally me. That's me imagining in my mind doing really messed up stuff. You know, I, I just can't even express it to you. Like when I watch things on Twitter, Truth Social, Rumble, YouTube, Telegram, wherever, I'm like, why is this person talking? They're totally whitewashing things. They're totally doing talking points. You know, even with this Durham report, oh my God, it's not <laughs> that shit's going on the archive too. So, you know, I, when I see things, it's like I, I feel like I'm just flipping tables and just I'm frustrated. I am enraged, you know, because people whitewashing, you know, <laughs> that crow is being served every freaking day. Because if you take it from my first episode, you'll figure out that we're somewhere in January of 2019 right now. So, but you know, ignorance coupled with self-preservation whitewashes thing. This guy's really excited because it's a very good argument. But think about it. The Internet Archive. So how long does a book make money for? Ten years? That people buy it like crazy and then it goes into secondhand shops. Not like, you know, Michelle's, uh, Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, right? Becoming what? A woman? Because she totally lied in that one. I have problem making babies. My uterus. Yeah, you need one to do that. What? Hillary Clinton's book that was next to the toilet paper aisle at Costco? That shit went on sale in like a week. I want you guys to think of what is going to be said in the next like eight minutes. I want you to listen to the next eight minutes. And I'm hoping that you understand where we're going with this. Because when people talk about tyranny, they forget those images of the Nazis burning books. And books represent knowledge and knowledge are thoughts. And thoughts are innovation, and thoughts are what drive progress, and thoughts are what drive us closer to an Arcadia. Just listen to the next few minutes. When applied to digital media, basically the copyright rule that allows you to sell things secondhand, books, CDs, movies, etc. The plaintiffs wrote, IA defends its willful mass infringement by asserting an invented theory called controlled digital lending, the rules of which have been concocted from whole cloth and continue to get worse. For example, at first, under this theory, IA claimed to limit the number of scanned copies of a title available for free download at any one time to the number of print books of that title in its collection. Though no provision under copyright law offers a colorable defense to the systematic copying and distribution of digital digital book files simply because the actor collected corresponding physical copies. 
Next in their crosshairs was the First Sale Doctrine. The publisher stated, It permits the owner of a copy to distribute the particular copy that has been lawfully acquired, for example, as in the secondary sale of a hardcover book or painting. But it provides no exemption from the copyright holder's exclusive right to produce a work. Faced with these inconvenient facts, IA has also advanced the illogical premise that its massive illegal copyright and distribution is format shifting, protected under the Fair Use Doctrine. But the rudimentary use of a scanner to format shift print books into digital works for distribution to the public does not constitute either a permitted personal use or a transformative use. The action squarely intrudes upon the exclusive rights under Section 17 U.S.C. 106, and no exception of any kind applies. So now that we've heard from the publishers, does the Internet Archive have any legal precedent to support their actions concerning the National Emergency Library or their practice of controlled digital lending? There are a few cases that might help us out. The first are the cases of Google Books and Hathi Trust. In these two separate suits, the courts upheld the right to digitize books, protecting Google's mass preservation effort to create a fully searchable text database. But the winning caveat in both cases was that the entire book isn't made freely available for all users, only allowing them to search for keywords and view small portions of the overall work. Another notable case that's come up in discussions is Capital Records LLC versus Redigi Inc. Redigi was an online platform where users could resell digital copies of songs they had legally purchased from places like iTunes. They were sued by Capitol Records in 2012, and Redigi's defense was that they were protected under the first sale doctrine, that if you could sell a physical item secondhand, you could sell digital goods secondhand as well. Redigi would lose this case with the court's ruling that though the seller's copy of the song was deleted upon being sold on Redigi, a new copy of the file was made in the sales process. And the reasoning for this was, in their own words, the dictionary defines reproduction to mean to produce again or to cause existence again or anew. Just to clarify this, Redigi lost the case based on an overly analytical definition of the word reproduced from just one of many dictionary definitions. These are my personal feelings on the matter, but it sounds to me like the judge didn't think what Redigi was doing should be legal, so they found a convoluted way to make it illegal. It's even a little bit paradoxical. The ruling almost implies that when a file is sent digitally, it's no longer the same file. Bruh. It's been produced again, anew. But at the same time, it's similar enough for the rights holders to be able to sue over its existence. Regardless, the case essentially put to rest the idea of the first sale doctrine in the realm of digital media. In addition to these few cases, Kyle K. Courtney, a lawyer and copyright advisor for Harvard University, penned an article defending the IA, stating that fair use is flexible depending on circumstances and bringing up the four factors of fair use related to copyrighted works. One, the purpose and character of the use. Two, the nature of the copyrighted work. Three, how much of the copyrighted work was used. And four, the effect of the use upon the potential market for the copyrighted work. Courtney believes that the NLE falls under the first tenet because it was for educational use and the fourth tenet because there is no market for emergency use during a global crisis. So after years of preparation, the first hearing was held on March 20th, 2023, and it did not last long. On March 24th, 2023, Judge Kodal ruled against the Internet Archive, saying that the National Emergency Library was not fair use and it infringed on the copyright of the publishers. The judge stated, In March 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic closed libraries nationwide and by IA's estimation, took 650 million print books out of circulation. 
judging itself uniquely positioned to be able to address the problem quickly and efficiently. Citing the ReDigi case, the judge ruled that although Section 109 entitles IA and its partner libraries to resell and lend their lawfully acquired print copies of the works in suit, unauthorized reproduction, which is at the heart of IA's online library, is not protected. The IA's nonprofit status didn't protect them either. Judge Codal citing a case where a church was successfully sued for posting copyrighted materials to its website. Even though the church didn't gain monetarily, they gained clout by hosting the work and could gain more donations by doing so. The judge also tested the case against the previously mentioned tenets of fair use, heavily favoring the publishers in each category. And it seems that not only did the publisher's legal team do an excellent job, IA's defense seemed to have done a pretty poor job, citing legal precedents that had little to do with the matter at hand. The archive pointed to Doan versus American Book Company, but the judge said, that century-old case merely held that the owner of a school book could reproduce new copies of the book's cover. The Internet Archive lawyers also cited the 1984 case where Sony was sued for manufacturing Betamax machines that allowed customers to record TV. Again, the judge didn't agree that it was related, and used the previously mentioned case of Google Books against them. Unlike Sony, which only sold the machines, IA scans a massive number of copies of books and makes them available to patrons rather than purchasing ebook licenses from the publishers. Although IA has the right to lend print books it lawfully acquired, it does not have the right to scan those books and lend the digital copies en masse. To hold otherwise would be to ignore the teachings of the Court of Appeals in Google Books that there would be a strong claim for copyright infringement if Google had distributed digitized copies of complete books. The judge continued to dismantle the Internet Archive's argument. IA's fair use defense rests on the notion that lawfully acquiring a copyrighted print book entitles the recipient to make an unauthorized copy and distribute it in place of the print book, so long as it does not simultaneously lend the print book. But no case or legal principle serves that notion. Every authority points the other direction. IA's defense of fair use with respect of the NEL therefore also fails. He continued by warning the Archive against using the first sale doctrine in their appeal, citing that its use in digital media has already been decided in the case of ReDigi, and that any broader scope of the first sale doctrine should be sought from Congress, not the courts. This is a devastating blow to the Internet Archive and their open library, but what does the verdict mean for the future of Archive.org? As far as the Internet Archive goes, I do not believe they're going anywhere. I think they broke copyright law with the best intentions. And even though the publishers are asking the Archive to pay for every single copyrighted book that they lent out through the NEL, along with paying the publishers legal fees, there is precedent that the IA might not have to pay if they can prove that they genuinely believe that their actions were within the realm of fair use. And even if they are forced to pay millions in damages, the lawsuit demonstrated that the IA has plenty of money, and it likely won't be closing its doors due to this lawsuit. But what worries me is the precedent this case sets for digital lending as a whole, giving more power to publishers to levy against libraries, and possibly sue others for loaning out ebooks. All in all, this is very unsettling, and shows the cracks in the American legal system. The justification for Capital Records versus ReDigi is based on an absurd reading of laws that could not have accounted for future technology, and at times it's even contradictory. This flawed ruling is now being used to make controlled digital lending unlawful, which will likely be used to support additional regulations limiting libraries, preservation, and the scope of future technologies. The Internet Archive has appealed the decision, saying the ruling holds back access to information in the digital age, harming all readers everywhere.
Thank you so much for watching. This is So this video pretty much explains their arguments. Now allow me to provide the internet archive, their response for their appeal. But before I do that, let's pretend I am from the future or I know. I am bringing you a warning that echoes through the annals of time. The battle over banning digital lending libraries is not merely a matter of copyright laws but it's a veiled attempt at censorship, a threat to the freedom of knowledge itself. In the name of copyright protection, they seek to shackle the dissemination of ideas to control the flow of information and to stifle the very essence of human progress. They claim it's fair. It's about fair con compensation, I guess, right? For the creators. But let's not be blinded by their deceptive rhetoric and such a finely written complaint. Banning digital lending libraries is a dire sign of a world where the powerful few hold dominion over knowledge. It is a calculated move to maintain the status quo, ensuring that only the privileged can access the wisdom and insights that should rightfully belong to all. In the realm of digital knowledge, the ability to freely access books, literature, and information is a fundamental right, a beacon of intellectual liberation. It is a world where individuals, regardless of their backgrounds or means, can transcend limitations and embark on a journey of self-discovery and growth. These libraries are not dens of piracy or theft, but they're gateways to empowerment, enlightenment, and equality. They embrace technology to expand the horizons of education, foster curiosity, and bridge that gap between those who are hungry for knowledge and those who possess it. The rallying cry of copyright infringement is nothing but a smokescreen, obscuring the true intentions. It is a deliberate attempt to silence voices that have challenged the narratives, to suppress ideas that dare to question the established order. And it's a censorship, censorship veiled in legal Olympic gymnastics, right? Center for Informati. You know, our disinformation Tika that's banned like almost everybody and their mother. She's sitting at my damn desk at GCHQ operating on this right now. We must not allow the shadows of ignorance to cloud our judgment. We have to huh, rise up against this encroachment of our intellectual freedom. Because the battle for digital lending libraries is a battle for the preservation of a society where knowledge thrives, creativity flourishes. So how do we protect the sanctity of the information? For a world without access to any knowledge is a world condemned to repeat its mistakes. Hence why taking down statues was one of the stupidest things. And I've said this many, many, many times before. So we should be promoting the ideas of open access, of inclusivity, and the future where ideas can flow freely across borders, transcending time and space. Remember that this fight against knowledge, this censorship war, is not about copyright law. 
It's about our fight for our right to learn and to envision a world where the collective wisdom of humankind shines so bright you could see it from anywhere. In essence, you know, you know how I see it, like knowledge. Other people will say, well, it's easy for you. Yeah, I know, you know, I'm, I have an advantage. But knowledge is like breathing, right? It's this intrinsic, it's intrinsic actually to the essence of being human. It's a fundamental right that nourishes our minds, our souls, expands our horizon, empowers us to engage with the world fearlessly. Just as we inhale and exhale a breath, knowledge sustains our mental and intellectual and spiritual growth as every breath we take sustains our physical existence. The right to knowledge should not be limiting. It should transcend borders, socioeconomic backgrounds and cultures. I mean, remember how many times in the movies women would pretend that they couldn't read or peasants weren't allowed to read books. You know, that's a real thing that happens. That is a very real thing that happens. And it's quite fascinating to watch. It's extremely real. They suffocate the ability to learn. Knowledge is not a luxury reserved for the privileged few. It is a birthright bestowed upon every single human being. Because it is through knowledge that we learn, we understand, and make sense of the world around us and sense of our existence in, in its entirety, right? It fuels, you know, Im imagination, curiosity. It sparks a flame, you know, in your loins to just do things and challenge the boundaries of your own limitations. Just like we're born with the innate ability to breathe, we're born with the innate thirst for knowledge, a hunger to understand, and the desire to explore. The right to knowledge should not be limited. To deny someone the right to knowledge is to suffocate at their intellectual growth and potential, just like the lack of oxygen leads to physical deprivation. And the lack of knowledge is a deprivation of opportunity, of equal opportunity, which is the foundation of this nation. Hindering personal development, impeding social progress, keeping people, you know, wherever. You know, when I when I get struck with 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 uh, debates in this in this realm, which I which I did this morning. I don't know if I want to tap into my ghetto self or my intellectual self to tackle it. Because once you recognize that knowledge uh, is a human right, it means that you're fostering an environment that supports lifelong learning, promotes education for all, provides equitable access and information to a vast amount of resources. So we should cherish knowledge as we should cherish the air that we breathe. I've always said this. I, I think I've mentioned this on air and those that know me know I say it. You know, when that time comes that we all die. Many people can sit and think, what is it that you'll miss the most? Well, I'll tell you what I'll miss the most. And what will piss me off is my last breath. And that is how I, I see knowledge and learning. 
I cherish the air that I breathe and and that's the way we should cherish knowledge because through knowledge, through information, we get to navigate the complexities of existence, shape our identities and contribute and it actually contributes, right, to our local, national and global environment meaningfully. We should all be advocating for the right to knowledge. Now, Many know from movies and old scriptures how tyrants refuse to allow people to have knowledge. They say this in, in the realm of tyranny, right? Where power is consolidated and dissent is suppressed. Basically describing what we are going through right now. And at first you were in this consolidated power and in silencing of dissent uh, by your own free will. And you didn't even see it because hiding in plain sight is the best hiding place. Dissent is suppressed because the, they claim, tyrants claim that ideas and knowledge to many is dangerous because it becomes a desperate tool of control, information control, censorship. It is a tool of control. And a tyrant understands the potential of knowledge to awaken minds, inspire revolutions, and dismantle the foundations of oppression. And they fear the enlightenment that comes with the free exchange of ideas, recognizing that an empowered and educated populace poses a threat to their grip on power. Ideas and knowledge have the power to ignite fires that you cannot put out. They challenge the status quo. They unveil all injustices perpetuated by tyrannical regimes, exactly what we're seeing right now. And when individuals have access to diverse perspectives, critical thinking starts to flourish and seeds of rebellion are now sown. And it's iron. Where of this transformative poten potential that we see seeks to restrict access to knowledge, to silence dissenting voices saying, you can't say this. They change our definitions. That is bad rhetoric. This is this. Huh. Because they want to mold reality according to their own narrative. To a tyrant, a well-informed citizenry becomes a dangerous force that undermines their authority, hence why they loathe President Trump. Because when you arm people with knowledge, they question the legitimacy of every single system in place. They demand accountability, they demand transparency, and they demand justice. And ideas that challenge the established order become catalysts for awakening consciousness and sparking movements of resistance that threaten to dismantle everything that those tyrants stand on. Can you hear their benches rumbling? Because I do. Because this is why they control the flow of information. This is the whole, the premise of EIP, of this disinformation, the hate speech, the putting boundaries on where your thoughts can be in order to control your thoughts. They have to control the expression of them. And so they manipulate truth, spreading propaganda, falsehoods to destroy, to distort like all reality and maintain this firm grip on the narrative. That's why it worked so well. So my suggestion was pretty spot on, right? Well, how you like that? In such a climate of ignorance, it becomes such a weapon in the hands of the oppressor, right? 
perpetuating a cycle of subjugation and thwarting potential societal progress, right? In the tyrant's eyes, ideas, and knowledge are a lot more dangerous than guns. Precisely because they hold the power to topple oppressive regimes and inspire people to strive for freedom and justice. So by stifling and disallowing the dissemination of knowledge like YouTube banning, Twitter banning, Facebook banning, Instagram banning, everywhere banning, they seek to keep individuals docile, read in ignorance, and susceptible to manipulation. This is why all of you followed all these people that told you to sit back and relax. This is why all of them dare not say my name, knowledge they do not have. But history has shown, even in the face of tyranny, that the thirst of knowledge cannot be extinguished. It's a raging fire. And I'm a pyromaniac. It persists as a beacon of hope, pushing against oppressive darkness and reminding us that the pursuit of ideas and knowledge is an inherent human right and must be fiercely protected. Now, how can the Internet Archive work on this? Well, in the United States, right, while the Constitution does not explicitly state that knowledge is a human right, so it's not explicit, several constitutional provisions and principles can be invoked to argue that knowledge is indeed a protected fundamental right. First and foremost, the First Amendment, of course, right? We all know that one. To the United States Constitution guarantees the freedom of speech, press, and expression. These freedoms encompass the right to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas which are fundamental to the acquisition of dissemination of knowledge. And the Supreme Court has repeatedly recognized that the First Amendment safeguards the public's right to access information and to engage in robust and pretty vicious intellectual inquiry, which is an essential component of knowledge acquisition, right? You got to do that. You got to engage. You got to access the information. How many times have I said, censorship is not about shutting your mouth. It's about not letting people hear you. I've said this so many times. Look at your people that are leading the movement. How many of them are engaging in censorship? They're all about freedom of speech. They're all about America first. I'm a badass bitch. Sometimes. <laughs> So, First Amendment is the first approach that the Internet Archive can use, but additionally, the Due Process Clause, waha, the 14th Amendment, ensures that no state shall, get this, deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. This clause in itself, and I love it, right, because I'm actually using a lot of that in my suits, right? This clause is being interpreted to protect certain fundamental rights that are deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. The right to access knowledge and information can be argued to fall within the ambit of such protected fundamental rights, as it's vital for individual autonomy, personal development, and informed decision-making. If we don't have access to information, how the hell are we going to make decisions? 
How are we going to contribute to society? How are we going to be autonomous and not dependent on someone else or a system? Furthermore, right, our Supreme Court, how many times have they recognized the right to privacy? But obviously, no one's really talking about that. Fourth Amendment is just like, right now, it's like so shady. It sits there and you're like, the fuck? That's been maimed. But it recognized the right to privacy that emanates from various constitutional provisions like the Fourth and the Fourteenth Amendments. And this right encompasses an individual's autonomy to make choices regarding their personal information, including the right to access knowledge without unwarranted interference or intrusion by the government. And right now, guys, we have completely been violated. They are guiding our ability, our innate personal right, our individual autonomy to access knowledge without government or government interference and intrusion. So in the context of education, the Supreme Court has held the right to receive information and ideas is paramount of importance, right? No kid left behind. Let's do more educational programs, right? It's recognized that education plays a vital role in the growth and development of individuals and society as a whole. So therefore, access to knowledge and educational opportunities can be argued as constitutionally protected rights. Ensuring that individuals can participate fully in the intellectual and cultural life of the nation. And while the specific mention of knowledge as a human right is absent from the Constitution, these constitutional provisions themselves, the principles that the Constitution stands for, and the judicial interpretations support the notion that knowledge is a fundamental right implicitly protected. The First Amendment guarantees the freedom of speech and press, the due process clause, protection of fundamental rights to the right of privacy and recognition of the importance of education all provide a legal foundation to argue that the acquisition and dissemination of knowledge are essential rights safeguarded by the U.S. Constitution. You know, Mayor Giuliani, you were right. I should have just went to law school. He's right. I should have, but I wouldn't have the patience. I'd probably have my license pulled. Right? Because I tell everyone they're wrong. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's how you win. The Constitution doesn't spell everything out, but it gives us exactly what we need to understand it. And while they claim unauthorized reproduction, unlicensed distribution, ignoring license agreements, whatever, what else do they Oh, they, they failed to comply with copyright exceptions, right? The question is once your book stops selling, they should be able to put it online for free. Until then, they'll own a copy and hold on to it. And then make it free to all. That's the way it is. So, Brewster, I just gave you your appeal. Hope you enjoy that. <laughs> and for all of you out there, knowledge is important. Censorship is literally the war we're fighting because that's the last tool they have in their chest. The more they can censor us, the more they take over us. And censorship is not about you being able to say what you want. It's people being able to hear what you say. It's not about you being able to write what you want. It's being able to read what you say, that other people can access it. That is censorship. And this is why they hate President Trump, because he <laughs> sowed the seeds of knowledge by shining the light in the darkest of places that they didn't want. I mean, look at me. I've been shining light so bright 
I'm attracting species from other dimensions per se, right? I am shining it so freaking bright. I put the Chinese wall to shame. And yet it's our own people that claim to fight with us that censor me. Remember that. Our own people that are supposedly on our side censor me. Censor you. The left doesn't do that. I want you to be paying attention. On that note, freedom. That's key. Freedom. God bless everyone. See you manana. I hate the winter. Can't stand the cold. I tend to cancel all the plans. Information. My cheeks in her color, overripe peaches. No shirt, no shoes, only my features. My birthday, I'm used to making pictures. Eat the bus and girls, lots of good beaches. Come on, come on, tell you my secrets. I'm kind of like the pity of Jesus.